This episode is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, and one of the most profound new supplements I've added to my own diet is collagen. And Bubs provides the only collagen that is not only NSF certified, but also Whole30 certified. Now, when we think of collagen, you might think of beauty products, but when ingested, collagen not only positively affects skin, nails, and hair, but also joint and gut health, something that I witnessed personally within myself. Now, I'm also a huge fan of altruistic business, and Bubs was founded out of tragedy. Glenn Bub Doherty was one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi. And his friends, Sean and TJ, founded this company to not only create great nutritional products, but also take 10% of the proceeds and donate them to charity. So they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 20% off your first purchase if you use the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear more about the inception of Bubs and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast with Sean Lake. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the 
products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorn has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Helen Barnett. Now, Helen began her journey into the British law enforcement community through their cadet program, ultimately graduating and working in the Metropolitan Police in London. In three short years during her service, she was stabbed, then blown up by a bomb, and then shot. So we discuss a host of topics from her journey into law enforcement, each of these traumatic events, terrorism in the UK, her physical and mental health journey, healing through community and exercise, the power of nature, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Helen Barnett. Enjoy. Well, Helen, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on board. No, it's fantastic. I, it's uh, seven o'clock here, so I will be completely transparent with people. I woke up, rolled out of bed, made a big cup of coffee, and uh, here we are. <laughs> so there's some banging around in the background. That's my uh, my little boy getting ready to go to school, my teenage boy. Um, so where on planet Earth are we finding you this morning? Yeah, so I'm in uh, Broadway in Worcestershire in the Cotswolds, which is um, a very lucky, beautiful place to, to live. Brilliant. Well, I know your timeline began in the Cotswolds. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. 
Yes, so I grew up um, in a village about a mile away from where I currently am, called Charles Wickham. Um, I had an older brother, two and a half years older than me, Peter. Um, Yeah, we we were, our parents were both uh, market gardeners um, in this little small village. And um, I think my dad was a third generation grower in the village so it was um, you know in his dna and um, my my mother married him and uh, she joined the business and worked with him on the land growing crops um, and the whole uh, family was sort of um, involved in that and it was just a very small close uh, amazing community to grow up in yeah fa- absolutely fantastic childhood really now i grew up on a farm in in bath in the west country um and when i look at society at the moment i realize how lucky i was for being brought up around understanding food understanding where it comes from how to grow you know what you should put on your food what you shouldn't as far as you know chemicals and those kind of things what was the perspective you got being a young girl in being involved in that community that you grew up in yeah absolutely what you just say said james really it was just um ingrained in us because it was you know every day mum and dad had a, an amazing work ethic you know they were they worked really hard they were very very proud of their crops they were generous people to the local people you know if um, there were families in the village who hadn't got any money dad would always give them bits and bobs you know they were just really proud simple people and yeah we just grew up around fresh veg that they just you know would bring to the table and um it was just a very very simple and complicated life and mum and dad were very content people they didn't need a lot of material things so I think uh and they were we were allowed to be outdoors and we we got into all sorts of scrapes breaking legs you know falling off ponies and out of trees and but we were I think it made us very resilient people from that and close to nature so I'm just eternally grateful Absolutely. I had the same exact experience. I was thrown from horses, motorbikes, etc. Never broke a bone. I don't know quite why, you know, how my DNA was with the, the, the calcium in my body, I guess. But um, yeah, certainly tore pretty much all the skin off my body at one point. Yeah, ouch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can empathize. <laughs> So when we think also about local farm, I think this is such an important point, especially as the COVID pandemic showed us the fragility of our food supply. Um, we look back now at what happened to a lot of small farms and certainly here in America, the, the mega farms, you know, the monocropping put a lot of smaller farmers out of business. And even the ones that are, were larger were still put out of business by some of the industrialized mar- uh, farming that was happening in other areas. Was there any impact on your parents' business with some of the large farm philosophies in the UK? You asked some really great questions because, yeah, absolutely. I think Dad, they both realised they were kind of the last of an era. They were going to be the last of an era. And I think that's why they were key for me and my brother to um, not carry on in the business and, you know, to fly the nest, really, because um, that totally they were on the cusp of those small little family businesses not being able to um survive and produce produ- produce like they were and supply like they did and it that that's what it you know evolved and um you know you look across from they're both they've just both recently died sadly but you know you look across from what was our back garden what was part of their market gardening land and you know dad would say 
he could identify every family, every piece of land that was occupied and that was having crops grow, that was maintained, but, you know, the ditches were maintained, the land was maintained. You know, that's all gone. It's, it's, it's sad, yeah, very sad. Now, we're obviously going to talk about mental health in this conversation. One of the most um, striking figures when you look at the statistics is the amount of suicides in the farming community. Were you ever exposed to any fellow, you know, farmers when, when in your parents' era as far as mental health struggles, even though it was probably not discussed back then? Yeah, it wasn't a subject um, that it, it was on the radar. It really wasn't spoken about mental health. Um, I remember as a, as a child, we had a, um, I didn't know much about him. He was called Roman and he was, um, I think he was a, um, Polish in origin from the war who lived in the village and he to me as a child he was a bit of a strange character but as I grew up and had conversations with mum he obviously struggled you know hugely from what he'd seen in the war with his mental health so there was him um later on I think there was a farmer that shot himself on his farm but that was you know later on I was an adult then you know but that was in the local community but you know it was just not a subject um, that was on the radar at all, really. Because when I saw that figure, I remember in the town that I grew up in, it was just outside Bath, there was a, a farm and there's this, um, how you describe it, it was almost like a metal um, barn, but it's the one where you could drive the tractor all the way through so you could see you know, through mm. the front to the back of the fields and the a farmer hung himself there and it, my dad was saying that you could see the silhouette of the poor guy You know, when, when he was first found and that when I look back now, there were a lot of people around that community I do remember were, were struggling in some way, whether it was alcoholism or whether it was suicide. Yeah, and it's it, a tough, tough life, isn't it, in the country? And there's a lot of poverty in the country. It's not this, um, you know, magical, idyllic sort of existence that kind of can be portrayed, is it? You know, it's a, there can be a lot of poverty in, in, the, in the countryside. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Jumping on slightly ahead, as I remember as a 19-year-old police officer, um, pretty much one of the first things I ever went to was a, a guy who'd hung himself in his house. And, you know, all these years later, you know, I'm 57 now, you know, I can picture him hanging there, you know, it's um, the impact. But didn't pro possibly appreciate it as so much as a youngster. Do you know, now I can reflect back and think, you know, that must have been horrific for him and his family, you know. Absolutely. Well, you talked about your parents kind of encouraging you not to follow their, uh, you know, professional path. When you were in the school age, what were you dreaming of becoming? Um, I was very, very sporty. So that was my my thing that I kind of succeeded at at school. Um, so it was sort of something along the lines of that a PE teacher or something. I toyed with the idea of going in the fire brigade but wasn't awfully keen on height so I kind of ruled that one out um yeah and um nursing any kind of I felt I wanted to do some good in society and, and help people um that was kind of you know what we'd seen from my parents they just they were good people who helped and I kind of probably wanted to do that in a different way um and then the police kind of seemed to fit the bill and, and I saw an advert for the cadets, um, which was amazing. Um, adventure training, climbing mountains, lots of sport. Um, 
community service within London and um, yeah so that caught my eye so um, it just kind of seemed to fit the bill really and that was when I was 18. Now speaking of sports I mean we're going to go on to talk about some of your physical feats later in life but what were you playing back then? Um, Pretty much anything really Um, we did we didn't do sadly things like cricket and rugby and football yeah that was just not something that girls did at that which I'd have loved I think but um hockey I was a good hockey player I played for the county um athletics rounders netball you know I've just it was just um I've just that 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 was my thing really just sport you know I'd have a go at anything apart from tennis I've never really had a go at tennis (laughs) you didn't miss much with cricket did I not? (laughs) I remember just as basically standing for an hour and then oh PE's over no one hit it to me oh well let's go home (laughs) go home get you yeah that's good then but I did I actually played um hockey myself in school um I don't know why I just don't know if I was good enough for for football for being in the teams but yeah and it's funny because that was viewed as you said as a woman's sport but as you know you get to run around and carry a stick it's a very very violent sport when no one's looking Cool. Yeah, it's a tough game. Yeah, and um, I, I, I was goalkeeper because I was a bit. Um, I didn't mind kind of putting myself in harm's way. I was, and I was quite a bit tall, you know, and big. And um, yeah, I remember having my eyebrow split open by a friend who flicked the ball and split my eyebrow open with the ball. Um, yeah, so that, that that was me really. Yeah, just sort of an outdoor sporty type. So walk me through, firstly, the cadets experience. You talked about what, what they were advertising, but what was it like for you specifically as you went through that program? Yeah, so I left Charles Wickham when I was 18. I got accepted. I went um, went up to Hendon, and it was a year of just absolutely an amazing experience. Um, it's a shame we can't do it for all young people in a way because it was, um, as I said earlier, we did uh, uh, climbed a lot of mountains, a lot of challenges, canoeing rock climbing abseiling we did um parts that were community service within london i worked in um, a mental health sort of um halfway house between hospital and home um um and a and a community center in in the east end where i used to have to go around visiting up the elderly in their homes which was just you know amazing experience um a a lot of physical stuff sport um keeping fit you know um it, it, and just a lot of discipline, really, and you know, learning how to um, put up with some some tough times, and you know, just um, get on with it. So, yeah, that was an absolutely fantastic experience, and which I probably appreciate more now than I did then. You know, because you always worry you're going to fail or you know you're not going to be up to it. And but yeah, really, really fantastic. And, and we're still friends now. The group of us that, that it's nearly forty years. Well, it'll be forty years next next year. So, and we're still friends. So, yeah, great, great experience. There's a friend of mine, Chris Hickman. I talk about his program quite a lot on here. Um, he realized that there were a lot of kids in our community that would probably become great firefighters, but there were barriers to entry, whether it was financial, whether it was just them not even being aware or having having the empowerment to believe that they could be a firefighter. So he's created this amazing mentorship program 
all these children have to do is show up at this fire station, I think it's three times a week, and they will have the training, the equipment. There's a kind of pipeline into um, scholarships for the fire academy here, and then there's another department or a couple of departments on the other end looking to hire them as soon as they come out. When we look at a lot of the problems in the world, there's a lot of finger pointing from from couches, from you know, from sofas. But what it appears to be the solution is mentorship, mentorship in your own home, but then mentorship outside your front door. What impact did that program have on you and the mentors that were in that particular um, organization? Yeah, uh, absolutely. They, they, they molded us and, you know, um, just developed us into, you know, really strong, capable people really i think um and just you know um it was just when you're at the top of a mountain cold and wet and tired you know it tests you you know so and you realize um you can get through that uh, you know that hardship so that it just was um just a very very sort of all-round fantastic experience and um took me away from a little sort of um this little Cotswold village you know in this little nice bubble um and made me believe in myself I think more than than I did you know before I joined so yeah it was it was really an amazing experience how does that cadet program compare and obviously I understand that a a a regular hiring process won't include canoeing and climbing and everything but as far as that level of discomfort how did the cadet program compare to what might be a normal recruitment process in the middle in uh, the british please yeah so from the cadets we we went on to hendon so we, we joined people who just joined direct you know um from different jobs or university or whatever their path was and um yeah it was it was it was um not as tough physically and not as tough you know with the discipline and so it was um yeah quite different really to be honest yeah from the year that we spent in in the cadets so i think there's a lot to be said about shared suffering to bond a group of men and women together and what i've seen here with my own eyes in the fire services here and i've experienced this because i've worked for different departments the the fire department hialeah here near miami put us through an absolute crucible and it was kind of by accident they hired a bunch of people with no certifications but half of us already had the certifications so while the other half went to school they just brutalized us for three months you know while they were waiting for these people to come out but that created such a cohesive bond and set the bar so high conversely the last place i worked out had no suffering whatsoever you sat and filled paper in you went it was protecting a theme park so you went and rode rides it was ridiculous and i saw a complete lack of cohesion in that hiring process so what is your observation about the bonding element with a higher level of suffering in a profession like ours completely agree that that discomfort suffering whatever you want to call it it just creates that bond you know you come through it together you help each other you they put you through tasks that you have to help each other and work together you know and you just learn that um you know um you can come through an awful lot um and i think going back to my childhood you know there was you know we were allowed to be free but that had a consequence you know we you know we had different scrapes um but you come through them and i think it makes you tougher you know not that i'm saying it's a good you don't want to get injured and stuff but this this hardship i think 
um, I think, to an extent we all need, don't we, to, to develop our characters and the group as well. Absolutely. Well, how did that prepare you for you know, your entry into the profession? You do the hiring process, but kind of walk me through the first couple of years as far as, um, you know, going from a village, you know, working with vegetables to working in the police force. Yes. Yeah, so I did the cadets, which was a year, and then um, passed out and um, went up to Hendon, which was about, I think it was, forget now, about 20 weeks at Hendon at the adult training centre, which was the other end of the complex. Passed out actually as top student um, and I, I was awarded the, what was called the baton of honour which um, m- it was much to my surprise really because I never considered myself very academic um, so it was a bit of a shock um, to be awarded that and again in, as the years have progressed I kind of look back and appreciate that more now than I did at the time if that makes sense um, yeah so and then I was posted to um, North London uh, Wood Green, Hornsey, that kind of area, um, just after the Tottenham, riot, Tottenham riots where um, PC Keith Blakelock had been hacked to death um, about six months before. So I was working with people that had been with him on duty and it was, um, you hit the ground running, you really did. It was a real tough environment. And looking back with a lot of people who had been, you know, badly traumatised and, um, yeah, and you just just got on and learnt really quickly, and um, yeah, very very different from what you know my my upbringing. So when I lived in London, I was up in um, Highgate area, basically working on Hampstead Heath for a while. I'm going to University of North London, so I'm familiar with that area. And I remember way before when I was still in Bath, the uh, the Tottenham riots happening, the Broadwater Farm riots. So yeah, I know you weren't physically there, but what was this the story that you got? Because I mean, in the UK, something like that happening was so unusual and so horrendous. But that mob mentality obviously grew to a point where you know that kicked off, and it was it was accepted by that small group of people that that were responsible. Yeah, as you say, I wasn't there. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, and I work closely with people that were. Um, who were with Keith or, you know, were directly, um, you know, fair and affected by it and um, still friends now with with a lot of them, um, you know, and it, it was um, truly a horrific for them. They were just ordinary people doing, you know, a job, a difficult job. And, yeah, they, they faced violence and, and horror, you know, just on such an extreme level that you know I don't think any that any of them would have joined and expected um so you know it was just um her- horrific for for anybody who was there that you know that night really because I feel like there's a danger of the same thing happening maybe not quite as grotesquely but you know the same mob mentality with a lot of division that we're seeing you know whether it's you know the here in the u.s division over pro or anti-police or vaccines or some of these ridiculous things Mm -hmm. that we've watched people cleave their own nations in what was the tension that was building in that situation are you aware of the kind of precursor to that horrendous event yeah not in depth um but it's been bubbling away um i think the i I think I'm right in saying, James, that, you know, the estate had become, you know, sort of a a difficult place to police. Um, 
not no go zone, but you know, very difficult and hostile, and there were tensions between you know different things that had gone on there. Um, I don't know well enough to to, to go in depth, it, but it had been bubbling away, you know, and um, just erupted, you know, that night, and it's just amazing. How, what people can be capable of doing in the in the, in the uh, right set of circumstances, really, isn't it? You know, it's just um, that 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 pack mentality of what actually human beings are, are capable of. Absolutely. Well, you talked about some of the people struggling from that. So for people listening, he was hacked to death. He was decapitated. I mean, a horrendous, you know, as you said, grotesque scene. Did you witness the ripple effects of some of the people that were involved when we're coming through that this mental health lens that we have now? Yeah, definitely. Again, as a young 19-year-old, I probably didn't appreciate, you know, um, at that time how horrific it, 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 you know, I knew it was horrific, but the mental health side of it, you know, I wasn't, it just wasn't a subject really anybody talked about, you know, there was, I was aware of people who were, sort of now working in offices who've been really badly injured um and um but it, it was just everybody just kind of just carried on and got on got got on with it you know and um it was just that that era really that you just didn't talk about that kind of thing now we're going to get to obviously the attack up to that point what did the uh the defensive tactics that like the other kind of um you know, you're you're facing someone with a weapon. What was the training up to that point that you receive as you on ramped into the the Met? Very, very limited and basic. Um, to be honest, James, I can't even remember what we much about what we did at at, at um, Hendon. I think it was very very basic. And as as a female police officer, our role was the same as male the male officers, but our kit hadn't evolved. So we were just on the cusp of being. Um, given permission to wear trousers instead of skirts. So I'll just paint the picture of what it was like. There was no body armour. We had handbags issued to us and a half-size trunch that's half the size of the men's trunch and that was supposed to fit in your handbag. So our equipment hadn't caught up with the role. So just setting the scene of, you know, what, what it was like and very limited, the um, self-defence. I can't even really remember much about it. It was that, that little, really. Now you you touched on the uniform. I don't want to make the assumption that there was any any differences in gender, but obviously a lot of people that are in the first responder profession, some of them do experience some sort of um, prejudice when it comes to gender within that specific first responder profession. Was that something that you encountered, or were you with a, a good group of people? I was with a really good group of people, um, and I felt accepted for who I was. There were, it was, I think we were on the cusp. We had an opportunity to do things that hadn't been available to women. And there were a lot of, um, you know, sort of, it was on the cusp of change. So you were working with people that traditionally, you know, it wasn't a female role, but I never, I never felt it, 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 you know, it was, um, I was held back at all. In fact, the opposite. No, and I can only speak from my personal experience. Yeah, well, good because I think that's that's it. Well, that's why I've witnessed in the fire service too. It's 
I think it's truly just the the prejudiced few that have very very loud voices that project. Oh, women shouldn't be in the fire service in the in the the, the law enforcement community, um, and usually it's because their own egos are so fragile they can't handle it. Yeah, absolutely. And I felt if you were f- fairly good at your job and y- you know you you were accepted whoever you were, that's how I, that's how I, my experience is. So in 1991, did you still have the 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 handbag with the the petite truncheon? So my handbag with my petite truncheon was in my locker because it was just it was just not worth even taking out, you know. So um, it yeah. So I was completely uh, unarmed. You've got to have a pair of handcuffs, and uh, and that was it. <laughs> So up to the up to the point where with the attack, I just want to kind of you know set the scene. What was the level of violence that you were seeing on the North London streets with your own eyes? Um, yeah, uh, it was you know it was a t- tough era. It was it was a tough area, um, mi- very mixed. Yeah, you know you mentioned Highgate earlier. You know there were some very very wealthy areas. And some very deprived areas going more towards Tottenham and that, you know, so a whole mix. Um, and I think you pretty much encountered everything. And, um, you know, you you had, you had to be tough because, you you know, you could end up rolling around the floor with somebody and fighting with them or running after them, chasing them, you know, whether it's a burglar or whatever, you know. It was, um, you know, busy, busy sort of, um, uh, you know, time and a very mixed Sort of ground to work on so you, you encountered pretty much everything so if you wouldn't mind that you had a, a you know a catastrophic event in in the you know the anyone's career that's in this profession walk me through the uh the stabbing in 1991 yes yeah, so i was um what was called a response officer just um I, I we were on late term which was a two till ten two in the afternoon till ten um by this time i'd got a young son ben who was 10 months old so i'd gone back working full-time as a as a mum, which was very unusual. Um, so there was no part-time working or anything like that. So you literally just went back. And um, so that's what I was doing. I was posted driving the van from Wood Green. Um, and I'd got – my passenger was John Davison, who was a sergeant. So he jumped in the van with me as my passenger. It was a very hot day. So we were just in our shirts, shorts, shirt sleeves. Um, and it was – um fairly quiet really um late turn on a on a monday could could be very busy but actually it, it was fairly quiet we were just driving around um and then we just accepted a call um probably about three o'clock in the afternoon and it was just an ordinary call to a disturbance outside the one of the shops in the main shopping area of wood greens a long you know long air long road with, full of shops and shoppers and this guy given the description had just been uh, sort of what they call preaching outside I think he'd been sort of ranting about God and just being a bit of a nuisance very mundane ordinary call that you'd get over the radio so so we accepted the call John and I and I pulled up um, in the van um, outside the shop and um, two colleagues in a, in a um, another vehicle uh, I think they pulled in just ahead of us which was quite unusual but it was quiet so they'd accepted the call as well um, and uh, I could just see from the description the guy who we'd be called to had crossed the road. So he was on the opposite uh, footway to me where I parked the van. 
Um, John jumped out, went into the shop, which was pretty standard, just to try and speak to the people who had called us and find out a bit more about what had gone on. And I, I uh, trotted across through the traffic, across the road to um, our suspect. And he was stood on the pavement, shoppers milling around, very busy afternoon. Um, and he got his back to me. Um, so to, to that point, I was 25, very fit, did a lot of bodybuilding, weightlifting, running. Invinci you know, I felt invincible and very, a very capable, you know, strong person. And I just said to him uh, very politely something along the lines of, hello, what have you been doing? And I don't even think those words had actually left my mouth. And um, what I described now just were, just erupted in, into a frenzy, you know, of, of violence. And, and in such a quick time, it just was so unexpected. He swung round, um, and I found myself flying through the air backwards. Um, you know, and I was really solid. And um, my friends who went who had gone to the call were getting out their panic car. They they. they they record just seeing me flying through the air and they just couldn't kind of um, sort of believe what they were seeing. Um, and uh, I got up off the floor and felt a searing pain in my stomach. And um, just very, very briefly, he just sort of had this in, in sort of thought, um, God, that, you know, that really hurts. I was really angry, got up. Um, I think I went for my radio to call for some, some help, but I, I Again, it's happened so quickly. It's it's hard to sort of verbalise the speed of how this was happening. But I kind of got a flash of him attacking my friend. Um, and what he was doing, he'd got a knife um, sticking out. The knife blade was sticking out of his clenched fist. So he was actually punching. He was a huge guy, well over six foot, punching with all his might with the blade sticking out of his clenched fist. So I'd been stabbed in the stomach um, at this point. Um, and I, I saw him attacking and stabbing Jenny to the very briefly, you know, it was just he was just going absolutely berserk. Um, and I went forward to try and stop him, that was kind of just my instinct. Um, you just don't really have time to think, you just act, you know, it's just, um, and he sent me flying again, um, backwards onto the pavement probably I've been told at least sort of 10 foot away, you know, that's the power of, of the, the impact of the, um, you know, the stabs and he'd stabbed me twice more. So I'd been stabbed three times at this point. And um, I was just totally incapacitated on the floor. And I, I first time in my life, I felt fear um, and vulnerability. Um, just, it was just overwhelming. Um and my white shirt, I remember just seeing my white shirt turn red in front of my eyes. Um, and I just, it sounds daft now. I just could, couldn't understand why if he punched me that hard. You know, it was just, I was just so confused, obviously in shock. And um, yeah, so, um, and I, I just couldn't get up. I was bleeding profusely, um, didn't know where from and didn't understand what was going on. But yeah, just this overwhelming um fear really and feeling very vulnerable and I wasn't used to being like that you know I was a very capable fit confident you know person and, and police officer so to summarize it in a, probably under two minutes um he stabbed all four of us so John came across um he got stabbed in the stomach uh Zara was stabbed she came across to try and help us 
uh, she was stabbed and uh, Jenny had been stabbed multiple times. So, yeah, he'd stabbed ten, uh, over 10 times in this just absolute frenzy. Um, and he it, it, he was, um, we didn't know at the time, but a psychiatric patient who'd stopped taking his medication and he just, um, you know, had a complete um, breakdown. And, um, you know, that, that was the consequence of it. Yeah, so... Um, we were very vulnerable. Some of the crowd were quite hostile towards us and uh, shouting, you know, they got what they deserved. And um, But some of them were very helpful. And one lady was giving me first aid. And I think that was the first time I realised I'd been stabbed. She was pushing on my stomach saying to somebody else, oh, she's been stabbed in the stomach as well, you know. And I was just trying to um, just stay awake, really. I was very frightened of dying. Um, sort of had visions of my little boy um, and just you know, just very conscious of not closing my eyes really at this point. And then very grateful when, um, you know, friends came that I recognised, you know, run to the scene to come and help us. And, you know, that was very comforting. And, um, um, yeah, we were, we were taken off to hospital and um, operated on. And, um, yeah, and it, was, it hit the news headlines because... Um, very unusual for women police officers and a male officer being stabbed. So it was all over the, you know, the news and the television and everything. And, um, you know, it was uh, quite a high profile incident, really, James. Um, yeah, you know, in hindsight, changed changed my who I was really that 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 moment in time, those few minutes. Yeah, yeah. So, kind of in a nutshell, that 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 was the incident. Well, I mean, firstly, it's absolutely horrendous. And then the fact that people would have that lens of they got what they deserved rather than be a protector in their community illustrates, again, some of the, the division that was going on in North London at that time. You've still got this guy running around. How how was the, the attacker mitigated? Did he, did he run off or did someone actually manage to stop him in the end? No. So, I mean, I've been told this because my obviously my... I kind of shut down and had a very tunnel vision and my memory is, you know, just very, very limited. You know, I was obviously just that survival sort of instinct kicking in. But I've been, um, so John came across the road um, and I've been told he'd started to calm down by this point. I think he'd just come, was coming down slightly from this sort of real higher frenzy of violence. And um, um, although he stabbed John, John managed to um, get him to, to hand over the knife with um, an off-duty police officer who was um, shopping with his wife, and he, he very bravely helped. Um, and um, he handed over the knife, um, and, that, and um, they managed to arrest him. But I wasn't aware of any of this at the time. You know, I was obviously prostrate on the floor, and yeah. But um, you know, I've been filled in with with all these bits and pieces. So uh, yeah, and it was it was. Um, it was a turning point in, in policing, actually, um, because John went on to do a lot of studying uh, around officer safety, batons. Um, I think he went to America, um, did, a, did a lot of research. Um, and as a result of his work, um, I helped him a little bit with, with the, the officer safety manual. The um, batons, quick cuffs, uh, body armour were introduced a few years later. So it was kind of... Um, good coming out of a, a, a bad situation really but it's interesting when you think that again a few years prior we'd had keith blakelock killed that there was still 
another huge incident needed before change happened. And even then, it was one of the, the victims that really spearheaded that. And this is one of the problems I see in some of the agencies I've worked for is, you know, you'll, you'll speak as, as a floor level firefighter. Hey, you know, there's this, this deficit that you know, this one day we're going to have a problem with this and people are going to die. And in the worst departments, I've been told, no, we're fine. Shut up. I mean, perfect example. My last place, the pulse shooting that we had in Orlando, he went to Disney first, the area that I protected. And by sheer luck for the people there, there happened to be a few extra law enforcement. I think it was a shift change. And they have all this on camera. The guy was literally out with his weapons, kind of hidden in a, um, a pushchair, I think it was. And he actually got back in his car and then drove straight to Pulse and murdered all those people instead. And the conversation when I got back, because I was overseas when it happened, was, you know, what are we doing? What are we changing? And it was just like, nothing. What are you talking about? Nothing happened. And the, this is the problem is if you don't have the foresight to imagine this is what happens in you know the IT world and so many other areas, they have people they pay to come up with you know, red team scenarios. What if this happened? What if this happened? And you train for it now so no one actually dies. But what's so sad is that when, as you see, the complacency, and I understand lack of funding in some areas, and this again is division and lack of support, but so often it takes firefighters to be killed or civilians to be blown up or whatever it is before someone goes, oh, we should probably fix that. Yeah, I agree. And generally, it's generalization. You've got good people um, doing a good job and sacrificing themselves, haven't you? That's a generalisation. I know you get the odd one that is, you know, doesn't fit that in any job, but um, generally they're good people trying to, to help and make make good, you know, whatever that circumstances they're working under, you know, and accept a lot. I think you, you, you just try and get on with your job, don't you, I think? Absolutely. Well, the other side as well, and your story illustrates this perfectly, is I believe that a lot of the violence that we see in the UK, in the US and other areas, we talk about mental health when it comes to suicide and even addiction, but violence. And here's a perfect example, maybe a little bit more of an extreme um, example because he was an actual psychiatric patient. But I would argue that the trauma and the mental ill health is behind so much of you know the gang killings and some of the other violence that we see on our streets. Oh, yeah, definitely, isn't it? You know, and from back the time we're talking now, 91, you know, we've thankfully come so so far, haven't we, James, in, in, in you know, trying to understand it. But, yeah, it's huge, isn't it? Huge, um, you know, why people behave like they are. It's so co such a complex subject, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, so there you were, you know, you've been brutally attacked. You've got a 10-month-old son at home. Walk me through the, the physical healing process, but also if there were any mental health impacts from this identity of this invincible policewoman to lying in a, in a hospital bed. Yeah, so I really didn't enjoy all the fuss and the attention. Uh, you know, I'm quite a quiet, private person. And um, so we had a lot of that intrusion in the hospital. I think we were in about three or four days and then went home. Um, obviously, had a little toddler. You know, went back to being mum. I remember sort of feeling quite vulnerable leaving the hospital. You know, um, and just honestly, there was just no concept of the the mental health side of it. So, um, had these nasty injuries to my arm and my abdomen. Um, one of them sort of didn't heal brilliantly. My, my grip in my hand wasn't great. But you know, eventually, physically, 
you know, I recovered. I've got some some good scars. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and just tried to get on. But, yeah, again, in hindsight, with, you know, I was affected. Um, um, but you just don't understand it at the time. Um, and, and I... I think I turned to training quite, you know, running the weights quite in a, that was my kind of self-medication to try and cope with the, these feelings that I just didn't understand, you know, so quieting the mind. And exercise is healthy, you know, but I think it was quite, you know, I had to do it to sort of, to, to um, you know, feel good. Um, so I used to kind of batter myself physically, really, if I look back and I was capable of it because I was, you know, really fit. Um, yeah, and it, it took its toll on my relationship with with um, you know Ben's dad, and that broke down. And he'd got his own trauma. He'd been involved in Broadwater Farm and had been hit by shotgun pellets, you know, from somebody um, shooting at them. So you know, it, it, it that 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 all sort of broke down. So I'd got that to contend with as well, you know. And um, but just went back to work a few months later, um, and putting on my uniform was pretty traumatic, but I was a very tough, resilient character and kind of been brought up, you know, in this environment with mum and dad, you just, you just worked hard and got on with it and you didn't moan. And that was, that was my mindset, you know? Um, so I just, um, just tried to sort of crack on as it were with all this unresolved trauma. <laughs> well, it's amazing people that identify that exercise is, is, is healing, but it can also be an addiction. I had you know, several guests that their mental health struggles included them exactly like you said, brutalizing themselves in the gym. Then you have this physical breakdown, which then just contributes to the mental breakdown. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been very fortunate over the years. My, my, I'm very grateful to my body now, you know, that um, it kind of took all that battering, really, James. So I was very lucky that I could maintain that as my as my coping me mechanism. <laughs> I went to London. Um, when was it? No November, but before that, I went in October on my own. I went in November with my son. Um, and I went and met with a friend of mine who've had on the show, Dave, who was armed transport police, um, you know, response unit member. And the second time that I I met him in London, he took me to the armory. And it was it was strange for me being British in this armory but it wasn't super strange because i have a pistol you know in my safe here and you know i've been around weapons so in america you can go to a, a sports shop and there'll be shotguns and rifles but i was thinking my god if if i had never been to the states this would be such a strange experience to be around all these you know these different types of weapons and some of the ones that they confiscated like gatling guns and all kinds of things when yeah, you had Broadwater Farm, you had your attack. Um, was there any discussion on the firearms? I know it's a, it's a, you know, a, such a, a hard conversation even here in the US, but I don't think anyone would argue that if you're faced with someone with a knife, then the, the you know, a firearm is obviously the way to stop multiple people from being, being stabbed. So was that even a discussion in the police when you were working then? Not that no, not not at all. You know, um, just just went back. There wasn't even tasers or anything like that. You know, not non-lethal uh, option wasn't even there. You just went back. It was just you know that still that traditional sort of way of, of policing, and um, you know, no, no, no discussion like, like that at all. Um, 
and just carried on policing how, how we all, always had done, you know. But obviously I was aware I wasn't quite as invincible as I once felt that I was, you know, so there's that sort of vulnerability. But I, I'd like to think I did, you know, just carry on and still do a really good job, you know, and I got stuck into, to, you know, I remember driving to a call and a woman was just going berserk with a knife outside one of the tube stations and again, it was it wasn't long after I'd gone back, and um, you look back now, you think, oh my goodness! And the four of us turned up, and we literally just surrounded her. And somebody said, you know, after three, we're going to rugby tackle her, and we just literally all piled in on top of her. You know, you think back now, and I remember driving back to the police station after we we'd arrested her and that, and thinking, cool, you know, that brought back a lot of memories. But you didn't tell anybody; you just just kept quiet, really. You know, and it, these layers of trauma build, you know, and it kind of led me on to, you know, the, the next sort of incident in 92, which is a year later. So was that the uh, the bombing or was there something prior to that? Yeah, yeah, so that was the bombing. So, um, yeah, I was, I was, um, I decided to su- study for my sergeant's exam. So um, I, I was, um, I was in an office, um, I got my radio on and it was early turn. So, um they kind of said it was quiet. So go and, go and do a bit of studying. Um, and if anything comes up, you know, cut, come out and, and help. So I was, you know, I was, I was in there studying, looking at my books and, um, and I heard a call over the radio um, that had been a coded and recognised coded bomb threat uh, in Walgreen High Road again, you know, where the stabbing had been. So I just piled out of the office, ran into the, uh, the backyard along with everybody else who was just piling out of the canteen and, just jumped in we just jumped into any available vehicle so we knew there was going to be a bomb or bombs going off somewhere in this huge area of you know Woodgreen shopping center um and we just it was just before christmas there was, there was lots of christmas shoppers shopping it was very busy and we just on honestly james we just randomly just started moving from shop to shop shouting you know there's going to be a bomb get out and i think they probably half of them just thought I'm going to carry on with my shopping who's this crazy woman you know screaming so it was quite a difficult challenge and we didn't know where the bombs were we didn't really know you know where to send them we were just trying to do our best um and uh yeah I was moving from shop to shop as, as were my colleagues and um I kind of I moved under this uh covered walkway into this covered area and I just remember like, this almighty boom um, ending up on the floor with pigeons and smoke and uh, alarms going off and glass shattering. It was just, just sort of time stood still. It just all became bizarrely very, although it was noisy, very quiet. I know that's a contradiction, but it's kind of, anyway, I can kind of explain it. And I just kind of dusted myself off and thought, yeah, I'm in one piece. I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not bleeding. I'm not, I'm alive. Um, and went back out onto the footway and, and saw my friend Sharon stood there. He'd been doing the same and she was a bit in shock. And we just looked at each other, you know, like, I think we should ex- exchange a few, few expletives, to be honest. We were just like, what the heck's going on? You know, we were just, it was just, again, just very confusing and scary. You know, despite your training, it's just, you are a human being. And uh, thank goodness we moved away um, from a bin that we'd been stood by and another bomb exploded in the bin and they planted fair, reasonably small bombs in the bins. 
So we were lucky. Nobody was killed. A um, few people were hit by flying glass. Um, but it was um, just, you know, just a very, it was just a awful experience again for everybody there you know um we just did our best um but you know just traumatic again it was just another another trauma really um and you know and although i wasn't physically injured it, it um you know it just had its impact on me again um and we just went home i went home to family life again carried on studying passed my sergeant's exam and um you know just just um, t- kind of put it in its box in my head as, as, as you as you did you know and that that was it you know in a nutshell again um and yeah just carried on um working juggling you know life was pretty stressful i was on my own you know trying to juggle child minding and stuff and shift work and you know all that everything that life sort of throws it throws at you really but um just and, and no sort of mental health support whatsoever. It just wasn't on the radar. Yeah, so that that was the second sort of major thing. And of course, along the way, you're dealing with all these things that are just classed as ordinary and policing that are so abnormal, aren't they? You know that. You know, just every day in in this, these services, you just come across things that really sort of as human beings, we don't really want to want to see or be involved in but because that's your job you you just accept it as as just ordinary don't you yeah exactly and that's i think that's what people forget is that accumulative effect you know where you were you know the the seven seven bombings no okay well then you should be fine well i saw murders and stabbings and you know child abuse and all these things but those were quote unquote normal calls exactly that's exactly it and we've just got uh, whatever however good your training is you just a normal human being, um, you know, and generally a not good human being, you know, that just wants to do a bit of good in the world, you know, that's, um, you know, largely what we are, these people that go into these services, aren't we, you know, you just want to try and do do, do good for your community or whatever, you know, so, um, yeah, so um, I could go on to the, the kind of the next incident if you, if you want me to, I just want to interject quickly because I think it's an important perspective and you literally were a recipient of this. So was it the IRA that claimed responsibility for the the bombing that you were in? Yes, it was. Okay. Yes. So yeah. what I have noticed, and you know, again, I grew up um, on a farm. My farm was next to an MOD base. So as a young boy, we would have to get the mirror out and check under our car for bombs before we went to primary school or secondary school. Again, normal for me at that point. Is it normal that a child should check for bombs before they go to school? Absolutely not. Uh-huh. And what really nauseated me is as I got a little bit older, you saw the kind of hero worship of IRA, especially in the US, not by everyone. But Mickey Rourke, for example, made a movie about some IRA guy and then publicly donated all his money to from proceeds from the movie to the IRA. Now, as a young boy in, in England, I'm watching, you know, women and children being blown up in shopping centers by these quote unquote freedom fighters. Now, of course, I understand some of the horrendous things that the English did to Ireland in our history, but Fast forward now, there was nothing heroic about it. It was the same extremism that was behind 9-9 and, excuse me, 7-7 and 9-11 and the Vegas shootings and all these other complete psychopaths Mm -hmm. that, you know, ruin these people's lives. So 
Talk to me about what you were seeing on the mainland by this group in, you know, the 90s that, that um, you witnessed firsthand and me as a young boy was always terrified of being blown up by. Yeah, so again, I, I, you know, I was clearly aware of the chaos that they were causing on the mainland and the devastation everywhere that they caused um you know in people's lives and obviously i i was a recipient of that on a on a small scale you know because i wasn't you know killed or injured or anything um but i i think i was so busy with my my job my, my you know being a young mom caught up in just everyday life i didn't pay it that much attention but you know that era they did they caused mayhem and chaos didn't they and that was the the aim that day in wood green you know, to cause maximum disruption, maximum chaos. You know, they put in fake um, bomb threats on the cordon. They knew where we put the cordon. So there was another bomb threat came in later at the cordon, which caused chaos. It was just this maximum in- impact, wasn't it, wherever they did. And sadly, you know, were far worse incidents than ours that, that, that people lost their lives on, on you know. Um, so it was, you know, an awful era, really. But I didn't understand a huge amount of it at the time. I think I was just so, so caught up in my little bubble in my own world, if, if that makes sense, James. Yeah, no, it does. But I think it's important because I, I, people may think it's a coincidence, but I don't think it is. When 9-11 happened and they really experienced terrorism here on American soil, and if you look at the timeline, all of a sudden the IRA kind of got... You know, disbanded or lost their power and I, I would argue it's probably because the American funding ceased right that's interesting that is interesting yeah 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 but um, I didn't you know understand um, yeah I think I just was so trying to keep afloat in my own life you know it's, so I, I understand a little bit about it but um yeah I mean on that day they they, they achieved their goal and, and caused you know the maximum chaos they could in our little incident in Green. now with the explosion was there a concussive effect I mean were you actually thrown because there would probably be a TBI element to it as well yeah so there probably was again I you know I just was on the floor grateful i was in one piece wasn't bleeding wasn't cut you know as far as i was aware i was you know uninjured and, and there was no, no that was it you know no concept of you needed to get to be checked by anybody and you know thankfully i think i was you know um i was okay and carried on carried on doing all my studying and passed my exam a few months later and so i think i was all right <laughs> thankfully well, from that one. So then, as you mentioned, the, there's another incident. So Boxing Day 1994, and bearing in mind you were stabbed in 91. So we're talking about a pretty shitty three years so far. So tell me about that. Yeah, so um, I, I, um, sorry, I, I can probably hear my, my puppy in the background. I hope she's not being too disruptive. No, no problem. Um, she just decided to play up. Um yeah, so I decided to apply for um, an, an advert that came up, come out for women on the armed response vehicles, which is very unusual. Um, I think it was only in 1986 that women had started to be allowed to carry firearms. So, um, yeah, um, I, I got accepted, um, and it was just very unusual. I was the first ever mum 
to be on the armed response vehicles, which was fast response cars that went out to, you know, sort of um, any incident that um, with a knife or gun or anything like that. Uh, passed all the training. Um, and my, my life, if I look back, had just become even more stressful. So, you know, juggling, being a single parent in a very male-dominated, highly stressful environment, really. Um, and... Yes, we, so we we got a call, it was Boxing Day 1994, um, to North London. Um, so this guy, Alan McMinn, he'd a history of violence with firearms. He'd been around his girl, estranged girlfriend's house and he'd abducted their young toddler in a pushchair. And um, she'd seen a, a, a handgun on him. So he'd got a handgun, his arm with a handgun. So the local police had been called. And of course, obviously being a firearm um, incident, they'd called us. So we'd made our way um, to a rendezvous point a, a few streets away from the flat that we believed that he was kind of holding, you know, was holed up in. Um, so Nick, my friend Nick and I, we, um, we borrowed some, I borrowed a ski jacket off um, somebody from the local police station, put it over our uniform and Nick did the same. He borrowed some of his jacket. And we, we just went round to uh, the address where we thought he was, and it was a flat up a stairwell. Um, and Nick was more experienced than I, and um, you know we drew a, drew a sketch. He drew a sketch map of the, the stairwell and the area. So our plan from that was to, as we did, we went back to the rendezvous point, um, and we were going to go and um, go and to the flat hopefully resolve it peacefully and get him out get the baby out safely so that was kind of our brief brief plan um and uh, i was stood at the back of the car um just thinking about putting my body on my arm because it, it that era we didn't um wear it all the time um so just these thoughts going through my head and then it was all very quiet and mundane in the side street just getting ready really um and suddenly that I heard this voice, a, co a colleague shouted, um, it's him. And I, I looked up and it, this happened so, so quickly, James. Um, so I just looked up from the back of the car and I could see our suspect and he'd found us. He'd followed us. So unbeknown to us, he'd followed Nick and I. Um, really sorry about the dog. Um, <laughs> and um, he'd... He was in the entrance to the road where all our vehicles were. And um, I looked up, acted instinctively, as did all my colleagues, uh, kind of started moving forward. I hadn't got my body armour on, got my handgun in its holster. And I just, again, this happened just so, so quickly. You just instinctively act. And I remember feeling this wave of absolute terror at, um, uh, as I saw him produce a handgun, and, you know, it was just so quick. Um, so he's got a big coat on and it, his handgun went in his mouth. Um, and my hand's reaching for my my Glock in its holster, looking up, thinking this split second, you know, he's going to blow his head off, uh, running forward. Um, and then the next thing I, I just see this outstretched arm and a bang and a boom and an impact. It was like being hit by a truck. Um, 
And I knew straight away I'd been been shot. Every ounce of me kind of wanted to run away. It's really funny. The human reaction was scream at me to sort of run away. And of course you don't because it's not your job to you run towards the danger. So there's this conflict of this absolute overwhelming fear and adrenaline. And um, yeah, so there's this almighty impact. And I remember just hearing this bang. And again, this kind of slow motion, James, and, and almost silence i guess your body kind of just sh shuts everything out um i think it's perceptual distortion isn't it or something like that they call it um and i heard this one bang this puff of smoke and i was went down on one knee but i was just aware of the, the danger around me you know um and then i didn't hear any of the other gunshots i think 12 rounds were let off by my colleagues who returned fire I think he was hit about eight times, but didn't. It's interesting, isn't it? What well, didn't hear any of it. Um, I was probably in shock, but um, and I've been told, and again, I don't remember this. Somebody, one of my colleagues, Tony, dragged me um, out of danger. Probably saved my life. Pulled me behind one of the police vehicles, but I don't remember him doing that. So I think you know, my body was just shutting down from shock, really, to protect myself. Um, and I, I was aware then that it was safe, if you know what I mean. And that's when the pain kicked in. I was on the floor, um, and I, I, you know, and I'd obviously been shot. And um, we, we'd got an ambulance actually on, on standby with us, which was normal procedure. So they started giving me first aid along with my colleagues. Um, there's this sort of dark humour my, my friend Richard who I'd worked with years ago was um, one of the unarmed local officers across the road and he ran across and like looked down at me on the floor and said oh no Helen not you again <laughs> I was of, thinking that <laughs> yeah yeah we kind of exchanged this sort of uh, <laughs> this sense of humour yeah, yeah 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 it's me again you know oh no the, the shit magnet <laughs> Yeah, yeah, lucky strikes again. Um, yeah, and they started cutting off my uniform and I, I remember just seeing a hole in my knee. Um, and then I think when the danger to subside, the adrenaline kind of subsided and it really started hurting then. Like pain, like I've never experienced really. And um, and then I started shaking and controlling. I guess that was the shock kicking in and... Um, they gave me morphine. I know they gave me morphine, an extra morphine, and a bit more, and uh, wrapped me in a, a space blanket, and um, then got got me into the ambulance, and off I went to the local ambulance, you know, the hospital. Sorry, um, on blues and twos um, again. <laughs> yeah, and um, I laugh because I can't. You kind of can't can't not really, can you? It's um, I was alive. And it could have been so much worse, but um, yeah, that was my last day uh, working as a police officer, and um, you know, never, never returned, and spent probably the next eight. I think it was about eighteen months off sick. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that that it was just uh, pretty pretty horrific, and then the, the the sort of straw that broke the camel's back, James. Really. So firstly, from the physical side, you know, when you think about being hit in a kneecap, that's a catastrophic anatomical injury. So, so what was the, the result? What was the injury and what was the physical rehab process like for you? You know, again, and I, I feel so 
grateful and blessed for this. You know, I really do that. Um, it hit the front of my knee unbelievably, went round the side and came out the back and just followed the line of the bone round and came out the back. And, um, you know, I know the surgeon that I spoke to said it was just almost unbelievable. You know, it was, it would have been a, should have been a catastrophic injury and should have smashed my, my knee to smithereens really. Um, and it didn't. So I had a, I had a lot of infection in it from it that, that they mistakenly um, stitched the entry and exit wound up, um, which you know let let all the debris that was dragged in with the with the bullet sort of fester. So I had a lot of trouble with that and uh, had to be um, treated at the military hospital at Woolwich. Um, um, but really, apart from that just amazing it's, it's a bit more troublesome now I'm getting older um but um yeah I've been just incredibly lucky really incredibly lucky well when you use the word lucky it always reminds me of, of other people that have been on here too that you know one lens you can say wow you're so lucky but the other lens is like yeah but I was shot <laughs> how yeah. lucky is that so it's a real paradox when people tell me the story and say about the luck that they had yeah indeed that's so true yeah uh, I, I, you know, I just just came into my my mind. My my friend Colin, um, he became a great friend from there and helped me a lot. He was my federation, like union rep. We don't have unions, but like like equivalent. Yeah, he's such a great guy. He helped me so much. He felt that he um, got hold of the the remains of the bullet after the after the case, and um, um, it had been found in a shop doorway behind me, like the little lead sort of inner, and um, and uh, it's it's. Bizarrely, in a little frame now, just as a sort of a, a reminder of um, in my toilet, actually, of um, you know that I do consider myself lucky but unlucky. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a weird one, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, that was the physical side. Obviously, I think the the mental trauma was was more significant. So you've had, you know, arguably a pretty traumatic career over and above, as we mentioned, the the quote unquote usual calls that that build up on any responders, you know, professional timeline. So again, you find yourself in a hospital bed. Walk me through the mental journey this time. Yeah. So um, yeah, in a hospital bed, pretty sh shaken up and traumatized. You know. Um, was operated on the guys it was really sad they weren't allowed to come and visit me and I think it was they needed to do it you know the guys who were with me they were they needed to do it they weren't allowed to come come and visit me through evidential reasons you know in the case the criminal case that was now you know evolving um I remember waking up from from the anesthetic of the operating theatre to two senior senior officers ugly senior officers no offense to them but you know, <laughs> looking down at me like you know and I was like, so confused you know, what are they doing here I think it was a commander and somebody else looking down at me you know it was, it was just surreal really and I spent a few days in hospital recovering and um, um, you know went home and um, my mum was a great help she'd come up from the Cotswolds to help with Ben and um, yeah and just um, yeah had him to look after you know he a young boy and you know I was his mum and um, yeah, um, but the, the, then, you know, it, it had its impact. And I, I was finally um, finally diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. It was really unusual at the time. And it was just really thankful to one of the girls, Jenny, who I was 
at the stabbing with she'd she'd seen this amazing guy um gordon turnbull and um it was kind of through her experiences that i managed it was a bit of a fight to get the funding but um you know got to see go on a program with him and um you know just uh was very helpful really to to realize i wasn't going mad you know or, you know or the, or, it, again a double-edged sword to be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress because i felt i was weak but also nice to know that you know it was a kind of a normal reaction to all these life changing life threatening traumas that, that i've been exposed to now what were you experienced as far as the symptoms yeah so again like the sport the physical side you know i threw myself into that once i could when i recovered physically from the the injuries but um just i was probably very i think i was quite angry um probably quite grumpy um not sleeping well um just um very anxious hyper vigilant you know noises a bang fireworks that kind of door slamming you know at that point i you know, just want literally want to hit the ground it's just this instinctive reaction you know all these things these intrusive sort of um thoughts about you know what had happened um it, so yeah it was it was a, a you know a tough time and of course you've got to keep keep a lid on it all to be a mum to Ben you know so it's just you could, I, could, I couldn't completely you know break down and, uh, and that was a saving grace really there were times when I felt quite despondent um that sort of it was quite a battle I, I think what I, Colin summed it up who helped me a lot you know that you love the job but it doesn't love you back and when you, you the realization that you literally give your all um and then then you get you you just the number at the end of the day in a way and it's a battle to get any funding or you know get a the process after that is difficult and um i was very grateful to to, to a lot of good people around me who kind of fought the, the system because you know they they kept there's individuals within it that care highly but the, the, the kind of the the job this big organization doesn't so much as you think it might do is that does that make sense? Oh, trust me. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> so, And I found that hard. That was hard. Well, I was yeah. going to say that. So the transition out, whether it's at the end of a full career and you retire out, whether it's being fired, whether it's being injured, that can be very, very traumatic. You you have purpose. You're part of a tribe. You know, you you identify as that profession a lot of times, especially if, you know, you, you're you working in a, in a specialist team and you've reached a pinnacle and you were a first in your you know, gender, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it was. What was that like? What, you know, you have the physical injury, you have the trauma of the event, but you know, now you have this organization that you adored. And as you said, when, mm-hmm. when, when the door closes behind you, there's that realization that another warm body is simply going to fill the seat that you were in before. Oh, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head completely. So there I was. I went back to live with mum and dad who were amazing. You know, their support was just amazing. So I, you know, plonked myself back back home uh with ben and you know they they were amazing probably put up with the right old grumpy pants um but that was harder in a way than the being injured absolutely this uh, you've summed it up james you know loss of purpose i think i was i was told i was at that point the most highly qualified female in the met so you know i was performing at the 
although struggling with stress, but you know, most highly performing one, you know, out there, this identity, and then suddenly you're sat there and you look in the mirror and you think, wow, who am I? What's my purpose? What's my role? It's very, no one really cares. You're isolated. The world, the job goes on without you, doesn't it? You know, one minute you're there and the next you're not, and you're not really missed. You know, individuals may miss you as friends, but it carries on without you. And, um, you know, that was harder than the, the injuries, if I'm quite honest, that period of time. Um, I had some, real moments I, I remember sitting on the drive at mum and dad's and obviously he was a market gardener got a shotgun having these crazy thoughts and i wouldn't have done them because of ben but i could see how people spiral you know i think you know i'm blow my head off they might listen then if i blow my head off or whatever do something absolutely crazy uh, um somebody might take notice of me and listen you know these said so that I had, I had little moments i mean Thankfully, he was a great grounder and I'd got some good coping strategies and, you know, got through it. And I had the love of my family. That was so very important, you know. Um, but, you know, you can, it, that that period was was hard and it was, it's been hard kind of over the years, really, to try and re, re sort of um, mold myself, having, you know, gone through these very unusual experiences. I then found myself unable to talk about them and just had to kind of fit into normal life with people around me and just kept quiet and didn't talk about it for over 25 years you know just um just try to get on with with my life really and put it in a box <laughs> well that's the problem i mean when we come from that generation and we're not too far apart age-wise where you know as a man you were taught never to cry and, and I, luckily in my household that wasn't really drilled into me but society it was and it was such a ridiculous facade of what for example men are supposed to be like real men you know should be courageous when needed and should be vulnerable and um you know emotional when needed as well um and the same obviously with women mm. um but it's it's fascinating because you know you walk through the story up to this point and you think about all the mental health interactions prior i mean i would argue the person that planted the bombs has mental health channel no normal person would decide to blow up women and children so there's mental yeah. health in the people that you ran on as you know the, these these uh you know these people committing the crimes and then you have fellow officers and you know and it's it, this this is really the common denominator with so many of the issues i mean we have such violence in the us whether it's uh, gangs or the school shootings. And again, you reverse engineer, there's going to be trauma at the, at the beginning and compounding trauma as you move forward. Absolutely. Sort of um, troubled, hurt people, hurting people, isn't it? And it's this cycle, isn't it, that, you know, just goes on and on and on and on. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just grateful. I was kind of um, had this upbringing where I was quite a resilient, grounded person who, I gen, you know, I had although my exercise was fairly excessive, I, you know, it, it was a, a reasonably good coping me mechanism, and um, you know, just sort of got through it and sort of jump on lots of years. And should I go on to sort of the things I kind of went on to in later life? Yeah, no, but well, well, you're pressing everything down. So, kind of walk me through, you know. If, if you identify along the way or if it was kind of what you're about to tell me now, I just want to make sure we don't miss anything in between. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds a long period of time, but, you know, I just sort of had 
a couple more children and just jo- little jobs and fitting around the children. Never kind of um, really settled into to another career. I didn't feel like I wanted a lot of stress and t- you know on top of you know what I uh, I'd um, sort of suffered really um, and. I did sort of lots of different sporting challenges along the way, and um, and then um, so three years ago, um, my my eldest son Ben, who I talk about a lot, you know, is an, a grown man now, um, rang me and said, "Mum, we're we're doing a um, a charity event for Rock to Recovery, which is it, it was formed by Jason Fox from SAS, who dares wins." Um, uh, there's 12 of us. Uh, I'm going to do deadlifting for 24 hours. Do you want to join the team? And by this time, I was 53, and it caught me off guard a bit. And I said, "Oh yeah, okay." They're not not entirely understanding what a deadlift was, although I did <laughs> did a lot of training. Um, so I signed up to this crazy challenge, um, and it filled it filled me with dread. Really, you know, the thought of it, and I was a lot older than the rest of them, and but it was amazing. Uh, trained hard for it, um, full of self self doubt, thinking you know I'd never get through it. And we we, we raised a lot of money for Rock to Recovery. Um, we deadlifted um, sixty kilos for for twenty four hours between the twelve of us just rotating, um, and it was just a, kind of a life changing event really, and um, led me on to to get involved involved with. Um, my good friend now, Nick Goldsmith, he's a, a Royal Marine who had his own trauma. Um, and he bought a bit of woodland um, and, and, um, and he was really struggling and realised nature, being out, you know, by a fire, the simplicity of it all was kind of saving his life. It could save other people's life. And he developed Hidden Valley Bushcraft. And um I went down there for a weekend, spent the weekend with him and he ran the campfire. I said, Helen, you've got this just incredible story to tell. And I kind of lived with it so long and it's become a bit sort of bit ordinary, to be honest, James. And I thought, well, it's, you know, it's just me. That's just what happened to me. You know, it's nothing, you know, that I'd ever really spoken about. And he encouraged me to do a podcast with his friend and, that was the first time I'd ever, you know, spoken publicly about it, um, and it's just been a journey from there, really. And um, another charity called um, Curtis Palmer Program, and they saw me doing one of these interviews, and they contacted me, and um, I'm ambassador for them now, so I'm patron for Hidden Valley Bushcraft and ambassador for Curtis Palmer, who help a lot of emergency services and veterans, and we do, you know, they do amazing things. We're going on an expedition to Norway in the summer and climbing Snowdon in a couple of weeks again with a, a police officer who's got a stage four terminal cancer. You know, they're doing uh, loads of amazing work and um, they've linked in with some friends of mine called Breath Connection. Again, another Royal Marine veteran who's, re- you know, tried to take his life on numerous occasions and he's developed kind of the Wim Hof technique of breathing um with with Miranda his friends and they're the breath connection now and um I introduced them to Curtis Palmer program and they're they're working it's really taken off it's been so successful um with Thames Valley Police and um the the breath work and the cold water um together um it's been unbelievably successful so it's lovely to see them 
succeeding and helping people and it's just been really nice to introduce them to, to one another and so yeah it's just um it's just great and that you know i've done a bit of public speaking as a result of of, uh, of it all and just sort of sharing my story and hopefully just helping other people now by you know um my, in my little way um in the, these amazing charities that are out there you know um doing 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 great great stuff um and also did this last july just gone we did another a group of us 12 did another um world record um pushing a, a gym sled with 150 kilos on for for 24 hours between the 12 of us which nearly broke me but um we raised um thousands for um hidden valley bushcraft and um the breath connection and um so you know it just it just fills me with joy that just just to give back a little bit really james it's it's, it's that healing process i think isn't it by by helping other people you help yourself in that that sort of circle so yeah that's, that's kind of where i am now really um after all these years of keeping quiet i'm you know hopefully maybe help someone somewhere by just sharing my, my little journey so I would imagine going from a profession where you felt you were doing so much in the community to then having jobs in the interim that maybe weren't fulfilling. Was this ability to give back again, to do the same thing you did in uniform, now out of uniform, one of the the, the kind of pillars of healing that you identify within yourself then? You asked some great questions because that's, that, <laughs> that's spot on, that's it. You know, as a young, 18, naive 18-year-old, 18 I joined the Met to help people. Um, it's just come full circle, hasn't it? You know, I'm 57 in May, um, and it's just that little bit of, you know, whether you give back financially to them by, you know, going through these crazy world records um, or just being on one of the expeditions, you know, walking up Snowden and talking to somebody, you know, um, walking and talking and being in nature or, you know, introducing Sam and Miranda to, to, to Curtis Palmer program, you know, and they're working. It's just lovely to just feel that I've just given a little bit back and, you know, helping and, uh, you know, it does heal me. So yeah, it's, it, it's great, really. It's great. Now, what other tools have you found? You mentioned the healing power of nature, and I agree a hundred percent. I can hear obviously that you have a dog. I've got one outside my my door here as well. Yeah. I'm um, really sorry; she's only nine months old. No, 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 no. I should be able to do some some editing wizardry and at least get it down a little bit. But it's not a problem at all. I mean, this is this is why these are real conversations with real people. We're not in some fancy studio somewhere. Um, are there any other tools that you found that also helped you with your healing? Yeah, just um, I kind of generally plant-based the way I eat, so I just really, really try and look after my. Sorry, she's going berserk now. She, she's um, yeah, you know, nutrition is so linked with our mental health as well. You know, the more I learn about it, you know, the better I can eat, and you know, that, that's um, just uh, being out in nature with the dog. <laughs> um, just keeping my life sort of as good as I can, really being conscious of what, you know, what I watch, what I think, all these things, you know, just it's all this holistic approach, isn't it? To try and work out what works for you best and make it a habit. 
a daily habit of just trying to keep on track really because it's we've all got got to work at it it doesn't doesn't just go away it's just trying to keep keep myself as good as good as I possibly can really beautiful well I want to just throw some quick uh, closing questions at you so I can let you go take your dog out (laughs) so the first one I love to ask is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend it can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated Oh, now the book I've just read, and I'm going to, I'm hopeless like this. This is my memory. Oh, um, do you know, it's actually a little children's book that my friend recommended that I read called Momo. Um, Can't remember the author, and I've just read it, and it's amazing. It's about time thieves, how the men in grey came and robbed Momo and her friends. They had this amazing community and kind of came along and convinced them that time was so precious. They had to give it all up for these kind of work hard, these boring kind of mundane lives. And um, it was all about Momo kind of overturning these grey men and them all getting their their time back. And it just was this how important life is, uh, the quality of our life and the, the connections with people. It was just a really brilliant book that I loved reading. And it was so, although it was, um, you know, quite a simple book to read. It had such a, an amazing message, um, you know, about our time. We get caught up in all this busyness of life, you know, got to do this, got to do that, got rushing around. And then before you know it, another week's gone, hasn't it? We're, we're all guilty of it. And it, it was just so well put in this book. I just loved just reading that. Um, but yeah, that was my most recent one that I that I've just read that, that really made me stop and think. Because um, before you, you know, you know it. You, you look up and your your life's gone, isn't it? Really, even if you live to old age, it's very short, really. Yeah, absolutely. Well, especially if finding something that gives you purpose. You know, if you're working a job that you dread going to every morning, then then yeah, that's a huge kind of warning sign that yes, we need money to to pay bills. But uh, you know, I would argue. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here now having a conversation with you uh, after leaving the fire service, leaving the uniform because. I wanted to walk the walk among some other compounding elements. Um, you know, I was, the whole thing was I'm tired of burying my friends and by leaving the fire service, it was also kind of a way of saying, look, this is how seriously I take this issue. It is killing us. I'm going to use this time to help share these messages, but also I'm going to take care of myself and my, you know, my time and my mental health and my physical health and not work shifts for another 15 plus years. Absolutely, because, you know, um, we're often, and I've found this very hard, self-love is sometimes the most hardest thing to do, isn't it? Treat, you know, treat yourself with the love that you show show a friend, you know, dear loved one. The advice you give them, the way you treat them, the way you talk to them, is often the most hardest thing to do for ourselves, isn't it? You know, it's been a real journey for me to try and, you know, love myself more and be kinder and nurture, more nurturing in my training and stuff and you know it's um it's, it's definitely a journey <laughs> absolutely well next question is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world oh do you know my friends sam and miranda who run the breast connection are you know the they're just what they're doing is um, really snowballing and um, impacting. Um, the, you know, it's just having a profound effect on so many people. I'm so glad for them, you know, his journey from 
thrown himself in front of a train unsuccessfully, thank goodness, and addiction and um yeah, he they'd be great. He'd be great. Very inspiring, and he turned it around from you know real dark days into you know, now doing the first pilot with Thames Valley Police soon because um, it's been so successful that the online courses that they've run. Um, so they'd be great. Yeah, they'd be great. Or yeah, or even Nick from Hidden Valley Bushcraft. He's got an amazing story as well, and um, yeah. They, they, they pop into my mind anyway. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you. So the very last question then, so I can let you take care of your puppy. If people listening want to learn more about you, where online or on social media are the best places? Yeah, so I'm, I'm on Facebook and um, Instagram, just under my name, um, Helen Barnett. So um, I'm quite easy to find. So I'm, I'm there and I just try and, you know, do my bit to promote the, the little chat the charities and the good work that they're doing and stuff and yeah so that there, there i am brilliant well helen i want to say thank you so much i'm gonna like i said be mindful of your puppy's bladder but I'm so uh sorry about her. no no not at all not at all this is this is you know like i said the organic nature of two human beings having a conversation it's not always going to be in some you know airtight studio but you know walking through your story the kind of physical ownership piece the fact that you were you know around, around some incredible humans and there wasn't the the sexual prejudice in in your journey but you know the the mental health element the physical um injuries that you sustained and then you know what you're doing now it's been incredible conversation so i just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today oh thanks james it's been lovely lovely to talk to you and you've made it easy for me so thank you